Welcome to another Dragonland Saga review episode. It is Kiranor Holmes Wealth the 14th. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my, my review of the Dequalinisty. I don't know what's going on. I'm like stumbling through my words here. By Tonya C. Cook and Paul B. Thompson. Now, I will be spoiling this story, so if you don't want to know it, go read the book and then come back later, but I'm spoiling it. It's your warning. Um... I would like to take a moment to thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below and remind you that you can always pick up Dragonlance Gaming materials using my affiliate links also in the description below. Now, this is only my perspective, so if you have thoughts that are different or you disagree with my thoughts, that's okay. Put your thoughts in the chat or in the comments if you're watching this after the fact. I welcome different perspectives and opinions. That's what makes a healthy, vibrant life. <laughs> we don't have to agree. We're not all uh, automatons. All right. So the way these reviews work is I'm going to give you my pre-written review and then just sort of riff a little bit. If anyone joins live in chat and you have any thoughts, put them up there and then I'll just sort of bounce off of those for a little while and we'll just have a great day. That's kind of it. All right. Let's dive in. The novel opens at the commencement of the building of Pax Tharkaz with King Glenforth Sparkstriker of Thorbarden and Kith Cannon, Speaker of the Sun, shaping the cornerstone together. Colonisty has existed for 80 years at this point. Kith's kids are presented with Verhana showing the utmost respect and Ulvian being a whiny brat. When shards of the stone strike Ulvian's cheek, he runs away screaming and crying. We immediately see, as we were led to suspect in the last novel, that the next heir to Colonisty is a bitch. There's no two ways about it. He is a spoiled brat who abuses his station. Kith Cannon announces that he will retire and his heir will become the next speaker when the Citadel is complete. Then we flash forward half a century or so with the completion of the Citadel of Peace, Pax Tharkaz, just a few years away. Kith Cannon's daughter is a captain in the Honor Guard and his son is a degenerate gambler and ne'er-do-well. Kith demands that his honor guard round up the slavers that are persistently operating in his borders. As Verhana leads the hunt, she realizes that Ulvian, her brother, is one of the slavers. She captures him and has him brought to her father, the speaker. Uh, Kith's... Whoa, I have like a huge uh, problem here. Uh, Uli's father puts him on house arrest not knowing what exactly to do with him, but wanting to keep it secret. He trusts confidants, his trusted confidants in the Thalas Enthia, the Elvish Senate, suggest beating him <laughs> or sentencing him to death, but he cannot be the next speaker, clearly. Kith takes time alone and is presented with the avatar of Hidukel in the guise of a sorcerer named Drew. The god tells Kith Cannon he will deliver another heir to him if he allows the slavery to continue. Of course, Kith Cannon refuses, and Hidekel warns Kith of calamity to come. Kith was shown her Matthiah chained at the ankles to prevent her from leaping off her balcony after her love, Kith, left her, and her son was hobbled in the war. This makes him reflect on his first love and how she turned into a tree with their baby inside of her foreshadowing. Kith decides to send his son to Pax Tharkaz to work as a slave to learn what it is like in order to give him a little bit of perspective and shame. And then the warnings come. First in the form of darkness for three days, then three days of lightning, and finally as three days of red rain. 
As Verhana is still searching for the slavers, she comes across a kender named Rufus Wrinklecap, who she takes as a scout. She breaks her party into two groups as the slavers' tracks split up. The majority of the force follows the larger group, and she takes two guards and Rufus to follow the others. They're ambushed and left for dead. As they continue through the crazy weather, they come across an elf slaver pretending to be a bard. He tells them a story of lightning striking an ancient oak tree and an elf exiting it with green hands. The other elves confirm that this is in fact true, but their behavior leads Verhana to suspect that the bard is actually a slaver. So she frees the others as she captures him. They begin to head to Pax Tharkas to deliver the slaver when they're attacked by goblins, and Verhana is poisoned by a goblin bite. Rufus saves her and leads them to other elves who are with green hands. He heals Verhana and says that he needs to find his father, so he's headed west, but he doesn't know who his father is. Back in Quilinesty, the Thalas Anthea learns of the prince being taken to Pax Tharkas and splits between the new leader landers who want to get the prince back and the loyalists who trust Kith's judgment. Kith explains everything to them, but the senators conspire behind his back. Discord rises to fever pitch in Quilinesty as the aberrant weather destroys crops and terrifies the populace. At this point in the story, it is really just a political, like, theme happening here. It's all about Kith Cannon trying to figure out what to do with his son and wrestle with the idea that his son, a slaver, is then going to be, a half-elf also, is going to be the speaker of the sun, the leader of his new nation that he founded, and how he can't abide that, but it is his son, and so he should be the next ruler. And so there's a lot of political machinations behind in the Thalassinthia, and the struggle with Kith Cannon and his daughter. It's great. So in Pax Tharkaz, Ulvian is beaten and nearly killed by a falling stone. An elf sorcerer named Druluthan saves him with magic before the foreman takes his magical artifacts. Drew schemes with Ulvian to escape and reclaim his homeland. Ulvian is initially hesitant, but after so many beatings, he wants revenge and agrees. We see Hidukel is involved as the patron saint of slavery, and Greenhands is clearly Kith's son and would be the ideal heir since Ulvian isn't worthy of the role. I'm interested to see where this goes as I don't remember any of this from my childhood. Ulvian and Druluthan moving forward with their plan uh, to escape Pax Tharkaz, Ulvian collects spell components that Drew needs to summon a clay golem which begins destroying the interior of Pax Tharkaz. This is the distraction that Uli needs to collect the magical necklace for Drew. He faces off against the dwarven foreman, but the clay golem falls apart at the end of the spell on top of the foreman. Uli and Drew flee and head toward Drew's tower. They evade everyone, but Uli refuses to give the whole amulet to Drew, knowing that once he does, he's going to be of no further use to him. So he tries to make a bargain with the wizard, and Drew transforms into an eagle and flies them both to his tower. Therein, he traps Uli until he hands over the amulet, or after his death, when he'll find another person to give it to him. The problem is, is that the amulet has a charm around it that Drew cannot claim. So, meanwhile, Greenhands, Rufus, and Verhana are traveling towards Pax Arkaz when they're robbed by centaurs looking for food. Greenhands leads the centaurs to a massive tree that sprung up in, the, in his passing over the land. 
He carries with him ancient elemental magic from the land, like wild sorcery in the Fifth Age, or the ancient scions before the gods of magic controlled magic. The centaurs rejoice and become friends, sharing a song foretelling Grehan's ascension to rulership over elves. We all know at this point that they're talking about the throne of Quilinesty. Then, Greenhands diverts course, convinced that he knows where his father is, and Hanna and Rufus follow him. Hanna is becoming attracted to this strange elf, though they don't quite get to the Luke and Leia scene in Empire Strikes Back. Kith Cannon hears reports from Paxthar Kaz of Uli's treatment and befriending of Drew from his foreman, and travels to Paxthar Kaz to intervene, but then learns of his escape. He leads his men to track them down and finds Drew's tower. Kith enters and becomes trapped alone with Uli, and they try to fight Drew to no avail. The other warriors are thrown out of the tower and cannot re-enter, but then Greenhand and his party arrives, and he walks right into the tower, no problem. He tells Kith that he is in fact his son, and Kith Cannon cannot disbelieve him because he looks exactly like his first wife, Anaya, and believes that this is the great event that has been foretold by the massive weather storms. They fight Drew together, and Drew claims the amulet and turns into a giant wyvern. It battles with the elves, and Uli finally awakens and is told to flee with Greenhands by Kith Cannon, who stands to fight Drew. Uli runs out, and Greenhands fights with Kith Cannon, wounding the wyvern. They all run out as the warriors are running in, but this tower has many tunnels. They end up defeating the wyvern slash Drew and burn his corpse and the fallen elves. Uli is awoken by the amulet calling to him from those ashes, which he then claims from the fire. Kith tells his kids about Greenhand being his son and will explain everything in the morning, but everyone is exhausted and crashes for the night. And they all actually sleep for a couple days before the next morning, where they all awake and Greenhands is asked by Hannah to summon the centaurs to carry them all to Quillinust. And he does so. It takes nearly a full day for them to arrive, but the centaurs, but once they do, they deliver the group to a welcoming populace within six days in Quelinost. All the while, Uli is conversing with the amulet, scheming to become the next speaker. Of course, the amulet is, you know, an, an artifact of Hidokel's. Kith Cannon presents his son, known now as Silverin, to his subjects to thunderous applause as the centaurs destroy the palace in their merrymaking celebration. Then Kith presents Silverin to the Thalus Enthia. I've always appreciated how the Aquilinisti Senate mirrors our own U.S. Senate, seemingly feckless and self-interested representatives. The representatives of the people, even in fantasy tales, crave power and don't actually care at all for the people that they serve. It just feels like I live in Quilinus some days. In either case, the already split Senate continues to be split and confounded by this new heir, and Kith Cannon announces his intentions to have Silverin succeed him. Darkness is in the house of the Speaker of the Sun, however. As Uli is manifesting visions of Drew, his disembodied, decaying head, to Silverin, his estranged brother, driving him crazy. He nearly attacks Hannah with a crossbow before they lock him up for his own protection, fearing that he's gone mad. Uli is doing this to discredit his new brother to claim the throne for himself. It feels like a Vincent Price horror story as Silverin descends to madness. The time comes, and that's a good thing, by the way. 
The time comes where the vision pushes Silvarin too far, and as Kith Cannon comes to talk to his son to find out what all the ruckus is about, Silvarin crushes Kith Cannon's skull with a hammer gifted to him by the King of Thorvarden. Kith isn't completely dead, only mostly dead apparently, and Silvarin is unconscious. This leads to Kith um, uh, traveling to Anaya's spirit before death, and it reminds me of a really weird experience I had with my friend visiting me when I was battling a rather severe moment of depression after he had committed suicide uh, in a dream. Needless to say, the moment in the novel made me shed tears in memory, but the idea of a world between worlds as sort of like a halfway place where you're able to communicate with the dead is a fascinating concept. Anaya tells Kith that his son Uli made Silvarin attack him, and that it's time for Kith to pass on to the next life. He awoke, stating that Silvarin will be the next speaker, and that he is innocent of his attack, and that Uli made him do it with the amulet of Hittikel. He forbade anyone from harming Uli, and forced everyone to forgive him, as few can resist a god's schemes. This enraged Hannah, but she obeyed. Then they all witnessed Kith Cannon's death, and I couldn't help but shed a couple more tears. Kith Cannon was a brilliant commander, a compassionate mortal, and a true leader. He wasn't afraid to go toes if he had to, and he knew how to take it on a chin when necessary. He is truly a great character, and I can't help but miss him. How fucking silly is that? Oh, sorry. How silly is that? In any case, the novel ended with Tamanir Amberdell's son, now a general in Pax Tharkas, asking Silvarin, the now new Speaker of the Sun, to ask his sister Hannah if she would marry him. Life goes on, and I can't help but be faced with the reality of Quilinisty facing, uh, falling really far from its founding in the Age of Despair. At least we can rely on the consistency of corruption in the Thalas Enthia, if nothing else. I think everyone should read this novel, and I demand the powers that be to make a House of the Dragon style series out of this trilogy. So get on it. <laughs> that is my review. All right. Solid Cumbie, how you doing? It's going good over here. Adam, what is up? Thanks for tuning in live. This sold you on Dragonlance. It's a great series. Great trilogy. Jeff, thanks for tuning in live. It's great to see you. Um, you thought the Dwarven one was the best trilogy of the pre-Chronicle stories. That was a pretty good one, too. I'm going to have to revisit that soon. Goldmoon, what's up? How you doing? You hadn't read the Dwarven one yet. Life, parenting, and other such stuff. Yeah, no, I, I, I feel you, man. Miss, Minister Mundane, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in live. Uh, it's simply the best series that fills a lot of history. Yeah, and the Dwarves, I mean, they're just as convoluted as the Elves. And that's what's so great about it, is that there doesn't seem to be, and for, you know good reason but also good storytelling like just a good like a nation that rises to prominence and just lives happily ever after <laughs> i mean that's boring storytelling of course but it's nice to know that no matter what age in dragonlance no matter what race no matter what nation you're going to end up with very similar human problems that we face in all of our political and social schemings as well and because of that, it's incredibly relatable and a little bit believable. You know, it, it eases that suspension of disbelief that much more. I appreciate it. Does anyone see the interactive type emojis flying? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Those are great. Um, let's see. You're not a big fan of the elves and Dragonlance because of their politics. Oh my gosh, yes. They're terrible. 
<laughs> and what's worse is that Kit Cannon, in his um, brilliant vision, founded Colonisti on the premise to welcome everyone and get rid of slavery, full stop. But that's not how it lasted. I, I don't think it lasted 100 years that way after his death. Because as soon as Kit Cannon was out of the picture, the elves went right back to their xenophobic, bigoted, enslaving ways. Even in the Age of Despair, even in the Age of Mortals and beyond. It's like they never learned from the like the, their original evil ways when Sylvanesty split into the Quilonesty and Sylvanesty. And one thing that really kind of bothers me about this novel is that there is literally no mention. I understand it's called Quilonesty, so why would there be? But there's no mention of Sylvanesty anymore. There's just a reference that Uli, Ulvian, asks to go back to Sylvanesty to be taught. This is all a ruse, of course. But Kithkanen tells him he can't because he's a half-elf. He's half-human, they say. And uh, his brother won't accept him because he's half-elf. So, like, that's the only reference. And then we get to see a, just a, a glimpse of Hermathiah. But all of that passionate desire that Kith Cannon had in the second novel is kind of stripped away in this third novel. Similarly, like it was in the first novel, written by the exact same people who wrote these. So it seems like Douglas Niles is the only one out of these three authors that wrote these three no, uh, the three books into this trilogy that didn't really have a clue about Kit Cannon's uh, supposed relationship with Hermathiah. All right. Chris, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in. All right. You can't stay. I will check it out later. Good to see you. One question you have in this trilogy changed your view of Kit Cannon's legacy. Was he a good leader in person? Well, yeah. If you stayed around the end, you would have definitely seen. I think Kit Cannon's brilliant. I think he is... Uh, He's one of those, he's like a Jon Snow, if anyone watches um, Game of Thrones. Like, he's just that character that is a great warrior. He doesn't believe that we should judge each other based on our appearance or our ancestry, but rather on the merit that we put out in the world. You know, the, the attitude we present and, and the deeds that we do. Like, that's what you should judge people on. I have no problem hating people if they overtly go out of their way to offend or attack me. But just because you're from a particular part of the planet or you look different or you like different things or you feel different ways than I do, that's the stupidest reason to hate anyone ever. And it's not a natural way to think. That's learned behavior. And so I, I thought it was great to see a character like that in in a, a fantasy intellectual property like Dragonlance that is founded on the premise of bigotry, uh, racism, and hate. That's how the Dark Queen was able to become so powerful in the War of the Lands, which we were first introduced to Dragonlance through. Um, it's refreshing to see a character that doesn't fall down those paths. That those, in, in my opinion, very evil ways of thinking. Um, that it's not uncommon to not be racist. That that's, that's the standard. That the bigotry and the hatred is a learned behavior. It's not, and it comes out of nationalism by and large. Um, 
And, and I love that those ideas are shared in this trilogy at the forefront because it completely recontextualizes what Dragonlance could be. And of course, Dragonlance as a series, uh, you know, through the Chronicles, of course, presents a world that overcomes those bigotries and hatreds, which is another reason why I love this IP so much. But yeah, it, it really, really kind of bugs me. All right, so uh, let's see. What elven sect do you like the most? Kaganesty, Quonesty, or Sylvanesty? Uh, that's a great question for everyone out there. Let me know in your thoughts. Uh, I haven't read the Kaganesty novel, but just based on the idea that they're people who like to live in harmony with their environments, that's something that I deeply believe in, and I try my best to do and to try to teach my kids the same and to try to get out in nature and, and embrace nature in your own sort of, uh, you know, life every single day, I think it's really important. So I think they are going to be the, the ones that I connect with the most. And, you know, I like tattoos too. <laughs> of all the shallow reasons <laughs> to, to like it. They have tattoos. So do I. All right, let's see. Uh, Kaganesty, at least they're true to themselves. Yeah, totally, Jeff. Yeah, unfortunately, Goldmoon, it's too real. <laughs> it's based too much in reality. All right, that is going to do it for my review of The Quality by Tanya C. Cook and Paul B. Thompson. Do you like the idea of Kith's son, Silverin, coming back to lead the nation? Uh, was the inclusion of Kent the Kender Rufus just a Dragonlance trope? And finally, can we ever have a representative government that actually represents the will of its people and not those who already have power? You can email me at info at dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel click the like button, and ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And of course, this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance Saga. Thank you so much for joining in that celebration. Once again, my name's Adam with Dragonlance Saga. Until next time, Slanjavar.